It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, gotta live diverse. It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, live diverse. You are listening to The Lens Living Diverse, a podcast brought to you by the CNIB Advocacy Team. Join Nisha, Vivi, and I as we speak to individuals with intersecting identities who live with sight loss as they share their unique stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Lens Living Diverse. I am one of your hosts, Ben, joined by my co-host, Vivi. Vivi, shout out to the, the, the listeners. Hello, Lens listeners. Welcome back to another episode. Okay, so we are going to talk about immigration with sight loss. So having those two identities, and uh, Vivi, I want to ask you, can you imagine immigrating from a different country and then uh, living with sight loss and coming over just on your own without family members? I just think it would be something that would be very difficult as a person with sight loss and no family support. Um, the prospect of moving is difficult enough, but uh, moving like countries and maybe where you don't speak the language, that just sounds like, you know, uh, an overwhelming task, especially without the support of family and friends. So I admire anyone who has done it, anyone who's thinking of doing it, anyone who's in the process of doing it. It's a uh, it's a challenge, I think, for everybody, but I think there could be added components when you're doing it as a person with sight loss. So, yeah, I'm really um, excited to hear about the experience of our, our guest today. Of course, so definitely a cognitive load for sure. So uh, with that said, I am going to introduce our guest for today, uh, none other than Lily. So Lily, how are you doing today? Hi, everyone. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thank you for being here. So uh, we are going to start off this conversation by letting the listeners hear a little bit about you. So if you could share a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I am Lily. Um, my legal name is actually Pei Wen, but I do go by Lily. Um, I'm a researcher and I live in London, Ontario. Um, I currently work at the Parkwood Hospital. Um, one of my main research interests is actually the psychological well-being of individuals with silos and their families. Um, I came to Canada from China as an 18-year-old in 2013 to pursue my undergraduate education, which brings up my first identity. I am an immigrant. I'm relatively new to Canada. Um, I am a member of Silos. I am legally blind myself. I'm a woman and um, I'm a member of ethnic minority group. In my case, I identify as Chinese. I also worked at the CNIB as an intern two years ago. So I have some experiences in the helping profession as well. Thank you for sharing, Lily. And it seems like quite a journey in coming to Canada from China. So even with that said, how was that process as a person who does live with sight loss? Overall, I would say, though, it's um, smoother than I anticipated, really. 
Um, but I do remember, especially in my first two years of undergrad, I felt like I was almost like the only student who would be like running between the, the accessibility services and the international student centers at the beginning of each semester. So yeah, it's been, it's been interesting and it's pretty cool really, like even getting off the airplane and, um, you're like in a completely different um, cultural and language environments and space. It's the fact that's like really cool. Like um, I was mostly fluent in English prior to coming here, but like still like the moment you get off the plane, ooh, it's, it's just really cool just to hear, oh, everyone around you um, is speaking English now. Well, of course you anticipated that, but when it's, it was happening in real time, Oh, yeah, it was quite amazing. I think for me and maybe lots of people who travel to another country where, you know, uh, they don't speak the predominantly language that is spoken there. I think I for sure would feel like I stepped off the plane and onto another planet. So I, I, I really enjoy hearing the incitement in your voice saying that, you know, when you stepped off the plane, you found it was really cool because I think that's probably a rare experience for newcomers to any country. Thank you. I think part of it is like uh, when you're 18, I guess things are more exciting when you're 18, <laughs> even though you have to navigate the different systems, like um, even like how to do tax returns, how to get your health card, stuff like that. And um, in my case, or in any person's case, um, someone with, with sight loss, um, just... Um, setting up accommodations, connecting yourself with the organization who would provide you the service that would help you adapt to your new environment. It, thinking back, it was actually a lot of work, but like when you're 18, it's just okay. One thing at a time, I got this. Yeah, and even what uh, Vivi was making mention of uh, the fact that that feeling of just your calmness and you're like yeah so i just went to a different country and i this was the process and what i think of is when i left to go to school in i guess a different town that was further away from my family and i'm just thinking of that day where it was the the first time i moved away from home and i'm thinking to myself when i hear your story because uh and you could elaborate this on or elaborate on this a little later where you would make you mention that you you didn't come with a family you didn't come with your family no it was just me i think it's part of it's like you are focused cuz i feel like when you are with your family you feel like okay i can count on my parents but when it's you it's literally like especially at the very, very beginning, it's just you. So I think that almost helped you focus in a in an interesting way, if that makes sense. You're drawing on what you're made of, like you really find out, you know, how resilient you are and how adaptable you are and how you function in certain situations. I, I can understand mm -hmm. that because, yeah, you only have yourself to rely on and problem mm -hmm. solve and figure things out. So if you don't do it, who's going to do it, right? Like it's mm -hmm. up to you now. Yeah, because I even remember, um, like, when I 
was like talking to people back then I didn't have um that much of problem I didn't like really get nervous easily or anything but for some reason I think it might be a common experience when you when you you first start making phone calls in a second language Ooh, it, it was nerve-wracking but you had to do <laughs> it like I had to make those appointments with um accessibility services or CNIB or like all the other places like it's just like okay like like it or not now you have to do it very good point. Very good point. It's almost accelerating that independence for sure. Uh, so you made mention about the, the language barriers. So actually, before we go into the language barriers, can you share with the listeners what uh, language you speak? Uh, what's your first language? Uh, my first language is Mandarin Chinese. Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. So uh, with that language barrier and then having sight loss on top of it and I know you made mention that you uh, learned English uh, back in China as well did you find that as any form of a barrier and then throwing that layer of sight loss in there actually yes I felt like if there was any um language barrier it's just like it just made more um prominent with sight loss um good example I can give is like learning all the food names because I feel like no matter how fluent you are with the language before coming to um, a country with different culture and different kinds of food there is nothing that will truly prepare you like all those food items that you were not exposed to in your home country but like when you don't have silos you probably can get the way with yeah as long as you can sound the words out and then you can see the picture on the menu you learn those things pretty quickly mm. and um for me it was cool like i knew all the basic food names but um you know all the cool pasta name, all the spaghetti, linguine, lasagna, yeah, <laughs> stuff that you wouldn't have often in East Asian countries. Okay, cool. Now you're in the cafeteria, like, oh, I can barely see the menu. Like what I did, I would literally ask the server. Um, so I still remember undergrad, um, there was a section in the food court that had the homemade food. So every every day they have um like different um types types of dishes. So I would literally ask them like what do you guys have? And they would actually just tell me. And um sometimes there would be like food that I I had never heard of. It's like, okay, cool. I don't know what those look like or taste like yet, but I guess I'll just order and test taste test. <laughs> so it was a few months of me taste testing all those different kinds of food. It was interesting. And even like my friends, um, they have to like explain to me um like what's some kinds of food, like what they look like or might taste like before I order them. It's like good example I can think of back then was pierogies like one of my Asian friends was like oh it's basically like dumplings but it's basically like potato and cheese inside and instead of meat and veggies I was like okay I think I got it (laughs) I will definitely let you know that you you definitely gained something new in the of discovering pierogies because pierogies are the b-e-s-t uh, you heard it first from everybody. Pierogies are amazing. Exactly. A and, Manitoba classic. Yep. It, mm-hmm. I love those. 
<laughs> so good so good we definitely have to if we don't watch out this might be a foodie episode what you, what you exactly you even like this. i remember first time i was in the subway line it was uh yeah i felt so bad for the person behind me there was subways in china but ju- i just never bothered to went in um but um yeah like they i had to literally asked the server like what are the veggies out there like can you tell me and like they would tell me one by one it was so well a test of my memory but I did it I eventually (laughs) just like memorized my order later on but yeah just stuff like that things that's like visual someone with Mm -hmm. outside loss you can oh okay I can see the picture and I can sound out the words and you, you learn those things instantly but um mm-hmm. for someone with sight loss it's literally trials and errors and to me it's almost interesting like I do consider myself as someone who's relatively linguistic and there's some stereotypes of like well people with sight loss if you cannot hear uh, if you cannot see you must be able to like hear it very well means meaning like you would learn language pretty quickly I think well, to some extent, that might, might be true. But like when it comes to language learning, we probably like encounter some unique bar- barriers that like you don't really recognize till you encounter them yourself. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. The thing that I was thinking of uh, as you were speaking was, you know, uh, everybody says that food is the universal language, but if you don't have access to the names or a sense of what they look like like how can food be universal it 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 usually connects us but the example you gave lily was somewhat of a barrier until you kind of uh were acquainted with the food items and got a sense of what they were made of and what they looked like and how they were spelled so Mm -hmm. it's just interesting to think of it from from that sight loss perspective of yeah someone coming to a different country and not really having a concept of what some of the foods are um, mm-hmm. and, exactly. and how that can be a barrier and then how that can be a point of connection, right? Because you're saying now you love pierogies. Okay, so even we're going to uh, revisit your experiences of living in China and something that we would love to know is uh, the accessibility. So what's the difference between the accessibility in China compared to here in Canada? There are actually quite some differences. I would say um, in China, accessibility and inclusive education, well, they are at their early stage. They have started, I feel like, in the probably 80s, 90s. Um, One thing that's actually cool was um, actually in the province where I lived, um, they started the resource center for um, children with visual impairments, um, like within the province. And I was literally one of the kids who um, received the, the support in the first year um, when they first opened. So in a way, I was lucky. Um, they would prov- like they would do assessments uh, with the, each kid. And in my case, I was provided um, with a monocular that I would actually like be able to at least see some of the stuff that's that's written on the blackboard uh, when I was um, sitting in class. 
But um, overall, like I would say, when you look at the big picture, most of children with sight loss would um, go to the boarding school for um, children with visual impairments. So um, the teachers working there, they would be trained specifically to work with um, individuals with sight loss. So they are professionally trained. But um, I don't think the special education training would was great, at least when I was going to school, like with the teachers teaching um, in mainstream school. So there was also no EAs, education assistants, um, sitting mm -hmm. with the kids when they were younger. So it's really a lot on the students and a lot on, on the teachers and um, a lot on the parents, you can say, um, if you are attending the mainstream school. Um, especially when you're talking about like some of the class sizes, it could be like 40 plus kids. Um, but yeah, um, another thing that stood out was probably like, it's not like people would fear individuals with sight loss per se, but mm. um, in general, the expectations placed on them would be like a lot lower than like what you would have in Canada. I, th I think in Canada, it's still true to some extent, like people either consciously or subconsciously would have lowered expectations for indi individuals with sight loss, but, but it's probably um, more so in China, like the lowered expectation and pity. Um, I think overall, I had pretty good luck with teachers maybe yeah they, they thought they were like I was doing fine so they generally held me um, according to the same standard as um, other students and mm. they were aware that I have sight loss so like I would say like um, in this sense I was pretty lucky in that sense because especially like when I was going to school um, now they have more students attending mainstream school now mm. definitely but well, back in my days, it, I would say it was a rare occurrence to see someone with sight loss in the mainstream class. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that's actually super interesting is um, this is actually not just in China, in China and some um, Asian countries. When talking about people with sight loss, people would immediately think like people I'm talking about, an average person who might not have that much knowledge um, about the sight loss community. Mm -hmm. They would think like in terms of employment prospect, the, the only career option for a person with sight loss is um, becoming a massage therapist, mm. which mm -hmm. um, in no way is to say, oh, like massage therapist is a bad job because it's not at all. It's more about the options and opportunities that you have, um, like where you can see yourself be, like when you grow up as a kid. Luckily, like, I don't think my parents ever instilled that belief in me, like, oh, when you grow up, um, you can only do this. So I guess not sure if they will be listening, but shout out to them, like, for like, <laughs> believing in me and be they believe their daughter did deserve more options than, like, she had the potential to achieve more and to, like, um, do to do what she wants to do when she grow up. In that sense, I just think it's interesting. Um, you know, you talk about 
the different expectations for people with sight loss. And uh, we think in Canada, maybe, you know, we're a little bit more progressive in, in our way of thinking, but uh, you're pointing out Lily that, yeah, perhaps not because it seems that across the world, the expectations with people for people with the, the lived experience of sight loss are, yes. are low and um, you know, People are at a loss about what the opportunities could be. And um, I was just thinking to myself, yeah, the the option to be a massage therapist, I think that career path is proposed to, you know, people still with sight loss as a viable um, profession. And again, to agree with you, not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but um, yeah, if you, you aspire to something other than that and if you have the support around you that encourages you to aspire to do what you want to do and not necessarily what uh society thinks is an option for you i i think that's great and yeah it's interesting the discussion about uh, the education system about how you also had access to specialized teachers and training and then the difference between the mainstream because i think also that's like a discussion or a thought that goes on about whether, you know, kids with sight loss need to have a specialized training in uh, an institution devoted to that, or if they should be mainstreamed. I mean, I can only speak to my experience. Like I was mainstreamed all through my education. And so, I mean, I think it was beneficial for me, but I can understand why there would be support and an argument for, you know, classes and, schools that are solely devoted to students with sight loss but it's, yeah. it's hard to say i think it probably depends on the family situation and what's best for the child and um you know you don't know until you're in that situation so i mean i'm grateful for my education definitely i, I love the shout out to your parents and i, I want to shout <laughs> out lily's parents as well because uh, you definitely motivating her to not just saddle herself with something not that we're all saying massage therapist is, is perfectly fine, but it's mm -hmm. it's about selection and you don't want to saddle people with uh, certain professions or their abilities. So thank you for mentioning that. So a question I really wanted to highlight during the lens, because this is how we actually met initially, Lily, on um, me and my advocacy role and uh, you being a top-notch advocate after hearing your story about uh, housing, a housing issue that you went through. And I wanted to bring that up today because I want the listeners to hear about your housing um, issue and how you found a solution to it. And I also want to know your different identities. Did that make it harder to kind of navigate through that housing issue and not having your parents here and being new to the country? Uh, sure. So um, I lived in a rental apartment unit on the first floor um, when it happened. Um, so it was March this year. Long story short, it was um, a sewage backup situation that happened to my apartment unit. Um, and eventually it led to a flood, part, partly because of the building staff negligence. Um, and essentially... Um, I had to evacuate because um, the apartment building, uh, the apartment unit was deemed as uninhabitable. And initially, the rental company actually refused to provide accommodation, like in terms of like living arrangement. 
like living arrangement, yeah. And um, they also refuse to compensate for any damage to my personal belongings that was caused by the flood. Um, so I had to do uh, a lot of research, like reading up the um, the laws and regulations on accessibility accessibilities in Ontario and housing. Um, I think my little bit of training in undergrad um, in disability studies actually helped. And mm -hmm. I also had to utilize my support, support network, in this case, mostly uh, my friends, uh, to talk and negotiate with the representative from um, the rental company and advocate myself. It's just um, what my needs are and my, what my rights are and um, doing some research to like just email some law professionals, not necessarily to take them to court, but to seek some like legal advice, what I'm entitled to and what I'm not entitled to. And eventually I would say um, a satisfactory resolution was reached two months later. Um, in terms of my identity um, and its influence, I felt like it probably played a role. First of all, like I wouldn't like wanna appear vulnerable in the sense that I don't have family around, which like that's the part I did not disclose to them. But um, I feel like mm, when, when those representatives, they are talking to a woman, talk, talking to a person with sight loss, talking to an immigrant, they're probably more likely to test your limits per se, because stereotypically, well, um, if someone's relatively new to the country, they might not know the laws as well, know their rights, what their rights are as well. But like, uh, too bad, because I've been renting since I was an undergrad, because like, I couldn't live in my parents' basement. So I probably knew <laughs> the regulations and laws more than like my, um, like my peers would do, like on average. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think um, when you have sight loss too, like consciously or subconsciously, there's an, um, there's that assumption that that you are almost like cognitively incapable so uh, but too bad I was like literally had to like deliver the loss to them but I felt like yeah they're more <laughs> likely to test you that way like thinking that they can get away with things but like like for me it's just to like stay calm and stay assertive and also like stay civil just like I would say like stay and like let them know that you are actually informed you are not like demanding something that that you're not actually entitled to you bring up a really good point you bring up the the vulnerabilities and mm -hmm. you have here the vulnerability and these are the stereotypical vulnerabilities because I'm a firm believer that just because you live a sight loss doesn't necessarily exactly mean you're vulnerable just because you're a woman or an immigrant right mm -hmm. but the stereotypical vulnerabilities that you have people addressing and I really like the point that you brought where when you go against landlords or these big companies or organizations or employers it's that mindset that they have of here's one being someone with a disability here's two being a woman and here's three being uh, someone from a different country and as soon as they hear that accent it's like oh well they don't know Mm -hmm. And that's why I, every time I hear your story, I'm not that it's just about you being 
a person with a disability or a woman or an immigrant because you definitely have other amazing characteristics and traits. But when I do hear your story being in advocacy, how you pretty much uh, fought the system <laughs> and you were very resourceful. So I, I, I really commend that, especially coming from the advocacy field. And I, I want to pass this on to, to Vivi as well, having kind of those, uh, those vulnerabilities as well, multiple vulnerabilities. Yeah, I'm just thinking that like this is where, you know, we have discussions about intersectionality. And so this is where your intersectionality influences the perception of how you engage with the world, right? Like that's mm -hmm. what we talk about with intersectionality. So it's not only the qualities that make up who you are as a multifaceted person, but again, how those qualities are interpreted or engaged with when you are dealing with other people in the world or the environment. And so Lily, like you just so eloquently stated, right. You, you um, identified, you know, every aspect to who you are as a person and your awareness of how that could be perceived by essentially people who have the power to make decisions or essentially have authority in this situation. And uh, you um, kind of flipped the script on them and schooled them. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking that like, you know, you have this advocate alter ego, right? Like you may think this because of what you see here and are experiencing of me visually or, you know, in the moment, mm -hmm. but uh, little do you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's more to me. I have I have more knowledge than maybe you do in this situation. So like, yeah, that's a perfect example of, uh, you know, being aware of who we are in terms of all of our identities and then how that is interpreted by the world around us and mm -hmm. just being cognizant of, of all of that. Thank you. Um, I think some of those qualities might be like built gradually like as I grew up because just growing up as the only kid in school with sight loss and um, mm. just having to be resourceful and I was resourceful I think eventually like that does build up your confidence I think for the most part I passed that stage of like oh you think I, I can't do this and I'll prove it to you I can like mostly like in ordinary mm -hmm. situation I passed that stage like I do this because this is what I want but like I think those qualities are still there when it mm -hmm. comes to advocacy it's like I think I do have that confidence of course I need to do the homework on my end but um, <laughs> it's like yeah I will actually do my homework and let you know like I know what I'm doing that kind yeah. of thing and just being res resourceful um because you have to um when I was younger maybe yeah I mentioned that I have monocular but um I wouldn't say like my accommodation in terms of like either like um from the school system or from like just the assistive technologies that I have were adequate. So like I had to come up with ways to like, just like just alternative ways to 
do stuff like borrowing notes from your friends after class to catch up stuff like that and even like as an immigrant because like especially at the very beginning it's just me so like okay when it comes to when it comes time to moving what do you do like well okay you just have to be resourceful like when you're like a midterm is coming up but like your accommodation plan was so being setting up because like first year I had I had to like do those things very last minute like what do you do like you just have to be like resourceful it's something that I even just realized and uh during this conversation is the vulnerabilities the perceived vulnerabilities that you just mentioned you just flipped it and you flipped it into resourcefulness and adaptability <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, like it's yeah. like you've cultivated this innovative way of just negotiating these barriers like all through your life because you had to, you had no other choice, right? Like your mm-hmm. your choice, you came to Canada, so here you are. You've got to mm-hmm. rely on yourself. So it seems like like that is just part of your core personality. You've been doing it ever since, you know, you were young because you had to because there was mm-hmm. no other choice. And I mean, I think that's a great example, right, of of you know, what we are capable of when we have no other choice but to, you know, draw on the abilities that we have. So even uh, something you mentioned, research, um, the big R word, the big <laughs> R word. And in previous, a previous episode, we had Dr. Mahadio Sokai, and we were speaking about uh, the importance of like research within uh, diverse communities and how you could find outcomes and you could find um, results from really looking at diverse communities. Uh, so something that I would love to ask you with your researching background, do you find that some of your own intersecting identities are seen within your research or do you have a goal as well to 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 show these identities? That's a great question. I think my identities definitely um, shaped my research. Um, first of all, I'm a member of the sight loss community. I think my own experience with sight loss um, has drawn me into the vision loss research in general. Um, especially the psychological aspect and speaking of the psychological aspect I now I think about it I almost feel like um just the emphasis on introspection in the Asian culture probably has some sort of influence but I do remember like having an interest in like psychology and biology um when I was pretty young but I do feel like um the emphasis on introspection in the Asian culture, probably like um, just highlighted that, reinforced that. And um, yeah, and I feel like with my uh, multicultural background, cross-cultural background, I do have um, a pretty good um, cultural awareness and sensitivity in my work. Although like um, I would say most of my work has been done with um, predominantly wide simple but like a lot of it was because of time time constraint of um, typical research projects but yeah even I felt like when I was defending my thesis I did get asked uh, about some questions about um, cultural implications and I felt like I could answer those um, pretty well with a lot of nuance 
thank you for sharing that and and i definitely in the future if you have any research i i am the guinea pig that you could test on mm, that's, that's good <laughs> to know yeah. um also i wanted to add that i felt like representativeness is important not just in research but like in every field like even seeing dr mahadeo sukai what he's doing it's really um, inspiring to me as a young researcher. Also, like given my uh, brief experience in the um, helping profession and potentially going into the helping profession as a career path in the future, like um, a lot of times, like I see um, what my colleagues at the CNIB, like what you guys have been doing, I feel like represent rep representation does matter, like in every field, like for me, I think um, in the research community, just not just like for me, I feel like just for um, individuals with sight loss and um, who are people of color, I think it's good that um, we have more voices from like people like us added in and it's it would be beneficial to the scientific community as well of course definitely yeah absolutely uh, of course it, and it creates that depth for sure it creates that depth of um, not just looking at just one single identity right and I feel like this is why we're here in the, the podcast and having that conversation with Dr. Mahadi Osukai and then having a conversation with you as well and the great work that you're you're putting forth in terms of research. And um, I, I know in my uh, grad school experience, we had to, to do research as well. And all I can say is I'm not a type research type person, so I'm going to definitely leave it <laughs> to, to you folks, but it, it's so important. I think it's so important to understand the different demographics that uh, uh, we come across and with service delivery that we, we all are passionate to put forward for sure. Yeah. Cause that's, that's Canada, right? Like Canada is just not one identity. It's many people living here, you know, with their own, ethnicities, ancestries, and diverse backgrounds. And that's what makes, you know, Canada the great place it is. Of course, hands down. So it <laughs> seems like we are coming to the end. And I hate it. I, I really hate it, the fact that we are coming to an end because Lily, I could definitely listen to your, your stories all day and your experience because I feel like it's phenomenal. Uh, I'm going to ask you the uh, last question, and I'm wondering for individuals who, and I, I won't say exactly your identities because everybody's different, but uh, for individuals in similar uh, situations or similar identities, such as individuals coming from a different country, English as a second language, uh, coming without family, um, what advice would you provide? And I know you may mention earlier about uh, being adaptable, but what else? Um, a few things, I guess. Uh, I think, first of all, believe in yourself. I'm not the type of person who say, well, as long as you believe it, you can do it. Uh, that sounds like multiple, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, motivational speech. That's just uh, a little bit far from truth. Because you still have to do the, all the work in, in between. But um, to me, if you don't even believe that you can do it, you wouldn't even think towards that direction. You wouldn't even work to towards that goal. 
so yeah believe yourself is important um like um there will be people around you with um the best intention they they might tell you otherwise um your inner voice sometimes will tell you otherwise but believe in yourself like what what you want to do and what you can achieve um also perseverance is important because you will encounter obstacles um especially when you're um taking a path that maybe not many people have tried before whether it's going to a field that's not like mm, traditionally known to be um, popular within the sight loss community or um, moving to another country something that maybe ma not many people have done uh, perseverance is important and just uh, it's okay to um, I mean it's okay to like not stay positive all the time. We are all human. Like um, you don't have to be that perfect disciplined person all the time. It's okay to be vulnerable sometimes, allow yourself um, that space, but overall perseverance is imp important. And also I think one last thing is reach out for help because no one, no one really like the site loss or not regardless you cannot succeed on your own, like make friends, make connections, like more often than not, people are more willing to help. And um, I think that's how we succeed. We help each other. And um, yeah, hopefully, yeah, that someone who's listening will find some of the advice helpful. Such a great advice and uh, well said and I you're a go getter for sure. You're thank you. You're definitely yep. a go getter. Yep, absolutely. Of course. So uh, as I made mention, we're running out of time. <laughs> Lily, 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 it was such a pleasure having you on uh, the Lens Living Diverse. We'll definitely, me, you, Vivi, we'll definitely have a virtual um pierogies uh lunch yes yes yeah. come, come to manitoba we make them uh, we make them great here and i saw in your bio early on that you're into bubble tea so we'll have that on the side for sure yes yes please <laughs> <laughs> excellent so once again lily thank you for coming on the lens living diverse and uh, letting the listeners know about your experience thanks for having me it's been a pleasure talking with you both yeah, um, thanks. Thanks for sharing, Lily. It was a really fascinating discussion. Of course. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to The Lens Living Diverse. What an amazing episode from, like I said, a go-getter for sure. and just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, if you like today's episode, along with our other episodes, don't be afraid to subscribe to our many platforms. Also, if you want to know a little bit more about diversity and inclusion, you're more than welcome to visit the CNIB webpage where you go to Advocate and then you will see we are CNIB. Click on that and then we have a whole page, whole wealth of uh, diversity and inclusion resources. And last but not least, if you're interested or you have any feedback that you want to give to the Lens Living Diverse, please email advocacy at cnib.ca. Once again, advocacy at cnib.ca. So uh, that's a wrap. Another episode of Lens Living Diverse. I was one of your hosts, Ben, along with my co-host, Vivi. Bye for now, Lens listeners. Peace.